We're going to spend the summer in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. And I'm going to use an exercise analogy, okay? What we're going to do in this sermon series is we are going to bulk up our faith a little bit. And we're going to build some gospel muscles. And we're going to focus on two things in particular. The first is the theme that you've heard over the last year, which is continuing our growth in Christian maturity. You yourself being a strong, vibrant, confident Christian who is confidently walking with the Lord, confident in your prayer life, confident in your Bible reading, confident in your journey with Jesus. And then the second thing is how to be a growing, thriving Christian who does life with others. In our people group, how is it that we are going to love and serve one another? How is it that we are going to grow in faith as a community? And you're going to see us begin to make that transition heavily this morning. So with that, we're going to go right to the text, and we're going to read 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 11, and build this idea, and then launch into a lot of very specific things as a result. So, Let's go starting in verse 3. What happens in verses 1 and 2 is Peter offers something of an introduction to his thoughts and then dives right in. He says, His, God's, divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having, uh, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful nature. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and with virtue, knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is a packed passage. And where we're going to ultimately end up today is in verse 7. So we could essentially read what we are going to be covering today like this. We could summarize it this way. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. So that's where we're going to land. And we're going to outline these two concepts, brotherly affection and love, in great detail. But there's a lot that we need to actually understand on our way here that won't just help us this morning, but will actually help us throughout the rest of this sermon series that we'll be in together. And I think that how we're going to do this is we're going to ask and answer questions this morning. So you'll be able to follow my outline essentially by knowing when I'm asking question. So the very first question that I want us to consider is this. For what reason did Peter write this? 
Because Peter was conveying something very specific and very intentional. Why did he write this now at this point in his life? There are a couple of reasons. One main reason, and really the main reason, is that Peter knew that he was approaching the end of his life. At the time of 2 Peter, he was probably in his 70s, and he even alludes to throughout the, throughout the passage, throughout this whole book, that he is beginning to sense the weight of age on him. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, he says, I know that I will be putting off my body soon. So he was sensing, I am aging. I may not be around much longer. He also knew that Emperor Nero, who was the world leader, essentially, at this point in history, persecution of Christians was ramping up rather aggressively. And if you know anything about Christian history, you know Nero, for Christians, he was a bad, bad man. So Peter was very concerned that he was at the very end of his life. But it's, it's also more than that. Because he sensed that time was running out, he was writing with some level of urgency. And in verse 15, he's making it clear that he wants to make every effort before he dies that his audience understand a couple of things. So he's writing with the urgency of death, kind of knocking on his door. In particular, what we're reading about is Christian character. Peter, at the end of his life, was very concerned about Christian character. And he was very concerned that the believers that were under his apostleship and under his care be able to persevere and continue in Christian character when he is not there shepherding them. Why, why was that? This is all part of this one question. Why is Peter writing this? The reason is this, because false teachers and false versions of the gospel were everywhere at this point in history. They were everywhere. I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, but Peter makes a definitive statement later on in this book. In 2 Peter chapter, uh, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, he tells his audience to be careful to not get carried away by versions of the gospel that are filled with error, that have twisted teaching, but instead, instead of getting lost in those things, instead of getting lost in secondary issues that will actually take you away from the truth of the gospel, that we need to be growing to be growing in grace, to be growing in knowledge, to be growing in brotherly affection, to be growing in sisterly affection, to be growing in love. Peter is saying, don't get lost in distortions of the truth, but instead, apply your faith always. So the answer to the question, for what reason did Peter write this, is this. Because growing in our faith prevents us from believing deceptive distortions of God's word. And Christians, I can tell you, I can tell you with great confidence, in fact, we know right now, as Peter knew then, that there are a lot of distortions of our faith that exist in the world right now. There are a lot of people that say things that sound an awful lot like truth. Half-truths, kind of truths. There are people that get on TV and they'll quote a Bible verse as if it's going to like, oh, hey, there's a spiritual thing and that means something, but it's not really the way that the verse is meant to be used. What Peter is telling us too, and this is important, is that if we are not growing up in our faith, if we're not growing in knowledge, growing in brotherly affection, growing in love, that what happens, he, he literally says this in the text, you're vulnerable. 
You are vulnerable to deception. You are vulnerable to lies. You are vulnerable if you are not growing to Satan and his minions working his way into your thinking and leading you to believe things that are not true. And this is what happens when these kinds of things infiltrate the church is that distortions, misrepresentations, miscontextualized application of the Bible, they all start to creep up. It's where you'll have someone, and I'm going I'm to probably flick a bruise here, but I want to make this point because Peter is making this point. It's how you have places and churches that teach that Jeremiah 29, 11 tells you and I that God has a wonderful plan for your life to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. That's a, that's a very true verse in Jeremiah 29. But that was written to Israel in the Old Testament while they were in exile. There's a very specific time-bound context to that verse. And yet that verse is rampant in Christian culture right now as if it applies to us. The only thing that applies to us from that passage specifically is about the character of God. God is sovereign. That's what that, that passage says for us. But that passage specifically about a plan, a hope, and a future, and prospering, that's for Israel. And these are the kinds of distortions of the gospel that Peter is concerned about. So what we find here is there is a sense of urgency, <clears throat> a sense of urgency to this text. What we actually have is Peter is writing his biblical last will and testament. Think about that. This is Peter's biblical last will and testament. And here at the very end of his life, in his last will and testament, he is exhorting Christians to grow in their faith to prevent us from believing deceptions of God's word that will continue to assault us at every single angle. So if that is what Peter is concerned about here, then let's transition to what it is that we want to grow in today. Today, we're going to focus again on brotherly and sisterly affection and love. Now, it might seem odd that we go to the end of that passage and we kind of do th these things out of order, but Peter actually uses a literary device here that's crucial for us to know. What we actually have, and we have this at multiple places throughout Scripture, is you have this list of Christian virtues, and they kind of read like steps that you need to follow so you get from one place to the other. But that, that's actually not the case when you understand the literary device that Peter uses. In English, we have literary devices that we use all the time. In fact, in English, our sentence structure is different than that of other languages as well. We put words in different order. What we find here, if I'm going to summarize, is you have a list of virtues that are sandwiched between faith and love. And almost all of the list of virtues in the New Testament that you can find, and I'll allude to a few of them as we go throughout our time together, they are always sandwiched between faith and love. So we can really tackle these in any order as long as they culminate in the type of love that I will describe to you in just a little while. So with that, let's then talk about the two things that we have today. And I'm going to do this kind of continuing the theme of asking and answering questions. So the question that I want to ask then is this. What is brotherly and sisterly affection and how do we do it? What is Peter specifically talking about here? The Greek word for brotherly affection as we read it in the text is Philadelphia. Kind of like the city. And the city of Philadelphia is called what? The city of brotherly love. 
So we can look at the text, and it's literally directly translated for us. There's not a lot of additional work that is needed for us there. Philadelphia is a Greek word, and it's actually just a combination of two words, and it means brotherly affection. Uh, Bible scholar Richard Baucom, he wrote how in the culture of the day, in uh, the apostolic era, basically between 33 AD and about 90 AD, that time frame, that this was a highly prevalent word. Philadelphia would have been very well known in the world at large. And it was a very specific form of family affection that brothers and sisters, uh, parents and children would have had for one another. It would have been widely used between siblings, between sometimes in close relationships, or by and large, someone that you would treat with very high regard. Tim Couture, are you in here right now? Raise your hand if you are. He's, Tim Couture is not in here. That's okay. Tim Couture this morning, he's wearing a vest. You saw, you saw that he was wearing a vest, and he should, you should all wear vests, by the way. <laughs> but when I saw Tim this morning, because I've known Tim for a while, I said, hey, brother, that. And what I meant by that is, Tim is a close friend of mine. I like Tim. And I, th- I think Tim likes me. You can ask him later. We'll find out. But what that means is Philadelphia. It is a close, highly respecting relationship where we care for one another. It's the kind of relationship you hope to cultivate between your children. It's, it's, a, it's a word of very high regard, which Peter uses very, very frequently. I'll just give you a couple of these things because Peter was conveying a very specific idea to the church. He wanted believers to have family affection for one another. Peter wanted the church, his audience, and you and I to treat each other as brothers and sisters. He says in 1 Peter 1.22, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love, Philadelphia, for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. 1 Peter 3.8, another list of Christian virtues. Kind of like the one we're studying here. It says, finally, all of you, meaning the church, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. And Peter, I could go on with Peter, but let's jump over to Paul just so that we see that this is a subject that's kind of all over the place. In Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Philadelphia. First uh, Thessalonians 4.9, so about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. The writer of Hebrews gets in on this too in Hebrews 13.1. It literally says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. The leaders of the early church, like Peter and Paul, they were heavily, heavily invested in trying to create a community environment You heard me allude to that in the announcements before. A community environment where we value community, where we are involved in one another's lives, where we treat each other like family. Peter and Paul want you to love each other. They want us to love each other as brothers and sisters. So let's stop for a second. And we're going to just take a minute and do some healthy self-evaluation. I want you to ask the question, how am I doing here? How am I showing family affection to other people here in the church? Am I genuinely, familially loving other people in the church? And am I allowing them to show this love to me? 
Now, as a point of clarification here, what I'm not asking you is if you serve in the church. I'm also not asking you if you're in a small group. Because you can serve out of duty and you can go to a small group out of a desire for community. And those are great things. But that's not what I'm asking you. I'm asking you a bit more of a personal, nuanced question than that. Are you personally, intentionally loving one another like family? Are you of your own free will and volition? Are you thinking about loving each other like family? And are you allowing other people to love you that way as well? Because if you're showing love, but you're kind of resistant to other people getting in your business, that's part of the problem that Peter is addressing here. So take 10 seconds. I'm going to give you 10 long seconds of silence. And I want you to think about this. Are you genuinely, familiarly loving other people and allowing them to show this love to you? Some of you might be thinking, I would benefit from an example. Like, I, I would like to know where this is in the Bible besides just kind of describing it to me. That, that's great, and we're going we're gonna to do that. I also recognize that here I am talking about brotherly and sisterly affection. Here I am talking about family, and some of you come from families that this was not found. Some of you come from places where this kind of affection, it, it didn't exist. And I say, show one another love like family. And you're like, well, I can't do that. <laughs> can't do it. Because you didn't come from a loving family. You don't trust a lot of people. You have been hurt and betrayed. Thankfully, the Bible in John chapter 21 gives us an example. So if you want to turn over to John 21, you can. John 21 is something of an epilogue to the whole book. Meaning, the larger story has concluded... But there are still a few more details to share. And that's what we find in John chapter 21. It's the story of Jesus appearing to his disciples and doing a miracle. I mean, it's, it's a, contextually speaking, a very big miracle as well. But that's a sermon for a different time. I want to stay focused on the idea here. What is, what is happening in John 21 and how does it demonstrate familial affection? The first thing we need to know is that John 21 is after the resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus has died. He has been raised from the dead. But Jesus wasn't just hanging out with the disciples the way he was before. Things have changed. He kind of pops in and pops out. He pops in and he pops out. And this is the story of the third time Jesus pops in. But the disciples are aimless. You remember, they were like hiding in upper rooms, Kind of like not knowing what to do. So what happened then is Peter, trying to take some leadership in this situation, with all of them kind of aimless, he, you can almost imagine him standing up and saying, I'm going fishing. It's a good idea. It's a good idea because that A, was his vocation prior, and B, they needed to eat. They needed some sort of financial income. When they were traveling around with Jesus, their needs were met all the time. They did not lack for things. They probably did not have an abundance, but they did not lack for things. So they needed to eat. They needed income. They needed to do something. So Peter and I think six other disciples, they got up and they went fishing because they needed something to do. And they fished all night and caught nada, zilch. 
Then literally at the break of dawn, verse 4 tells us that Jesus appears on the shore and he yells out to the disciples. Again, this is the third time Jesus appears after the resurrection. And Jesus is like, hey, throw the net on the other side of the boat. Now, if I would be the disciples, I would think to myself, it's about 10 feet difference. What, what is the difference to that side of the boat? But you know what? The disciples did it anyway. What do they have to lose? And they caught 153 fish, which would have been astounding, which is why the text says that the nets didn't break, because it would have been an astounding number of fish, a miracle-level number of fish. Unsurprisingly, the disciples realize this is Jesus, and they book to the shore where they find Jesus has cooked them breakfast. Interesting little event, set of events. Now, we could talk more about this, but what I want to do is lean into the dialogue that is between verses 15 and 19, particularly verses 15 through 17, where Peter talks, or excuse me, where Jesus talks to Peter, who is the one who wrote the text that we're studying. Jesus says, starting in verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him for the second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus, he said to him for the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him for the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now you see the the word love throughout that passage many times. There are a couple of important things there. Jesus, the first two times he asked Peter, do you love me? He actually used the word agape. And then the third time he used the word Philadelphia. But Peter, all three times, used the word Philadelphia, which is in and of itself fascinating. But again, a sermon for another time. What is important, because I just want you to understand the context of what's happening there, what is important is the event itself. John 21 takes place mere weeks after John 18. In John 18, what we find is Peter denying Jesus, not once, not twice, but how many times? Three times. And what we find here in the midst of the fact that this massive betrayal was mere weeks, mere days really ago, is Jesus makes him breakfast. Jesus financially provides for him. Think about what's actually happening here. Jesus met their reactive needs. Right then and there, on the spot, Jesus met their needs with 153 very heavy fish. Jesus took care of the fact that they didn't know what else to do, so they went fishing. Jesus said, I got that. I'll take care of that for you. Jesus broke bread with Peter just as he did prior to the crucifixion, prior to Peter's betrayal. They broke bread based on the use of Philadelphia as brothers, as family. Jesus questioned Peter on his love and loyalty to the mission, language that we know based on the original context of the passage. It's not corrective. It's actually instructive. Jesus had returned to the fullness of their previous relationship. He was eating with him like a brother and instructing him just as he did before. 
And then Jesus didn't correct him. He commissioned him. Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. Some Bible scholars argue that the threefold nature of Jesus' questioning of Peter is designed for Peter to, with these three questions, recall the three denials. And what the theory is, and I think there's, we, we don't know this, but there's some validity to it. We like closure, don't we? Does any, anybody ever really love having a bunch of stuff hanging out there in their life, totally unclosed? No. We love closure. And this reads very much like Jesus is providing Peter with closure. It was not corrective. It was familial affirmation. And then he was charged, Peter was charged, to press forward in the work that Jesus had already commissioned Peter to do. There is brotherly and sisterly affection all over this text. It was intentionally eating together as a, as a sign of relational solidarity. There's fellowship around truth. There's forgiveness. There's an unwillingness to impose guilt and shame on someone for wrong that they had done against them. There's camaraderie despite past issues of broken trust. And there is now trust or the restoration of trust with Jesus commissioning Peter to press on. There is a commissioning to work together to continue in their past commitments. Generally speaking, that is what it looks like. If you struggle with family affection, if you struggle with trust, it's spend time with other people, have fellowship around truth, offer forgiveness, be willing to not guilt or shame someone else, have camaraderie, strive to restore trust, work together again so that trust is restored. These are the things that Jesus would have us do if we don't understand how to do this from our families. So let's return to the question and let's answer it in great detail. If you're taking notes or you're taking pictures of the screen, this is the thing you're going to want. What is brotherly and sisterly affection and how do we accomplish it? It is familial love for your brothers and sisters in Christ where you prioritize relationship, trust, forgiveness, and the work of the gospel together where you prioritize those things together, where you love one another as family and you serve together, you grow together as family, that you prioritize Christian family. Am I genuinely, familially loving other people in the church this way? And am I allowing them to show this love to me? Sobering self-reflection that I encourage you to continue to do. So if that's brotherly and sisterly affection... What is love? What is love and how do we accomplish it? What is the love that is here? The Greek word in 2 Peter, uh, chapter 1, verse 7, yeah, 2 Peter 1 verse 7 is agape. I mentioned that a few minutes ago. This is probably the type of love in Christian circles that we are the most familiar with. It is the overflowing, never-ending, unrelenting unconditional, sacrificial love of God. You'll note I did not say reckless, but that too is a sermon for another time. Or you can ask me later. When the Bible says God is love, this is the love that it is referring to. It is the John 3.16 love that God the Father has in sending Jesus to die for our sins. It is a love of humble choice. 
It is a love that says, I love you even though you have hurt me. I love you even though you have betrayed me. I love you even though your sin has hurt me. It is the just because kind of love. It is the love that is existent regardless of appearance, emotion, attraction, or sentiment. It is love that is willfully, regardless of anything, self-sacrificing. This kind of love encompasses all other kinds of loves. Agape love is the love that holds together the Christian life. It is the love that God has that results in our ability to be saved at all. But what that means, and this is important, it means that agape love, full and complete self-sacrificing love, is only possible for you if you are a Christian. You can be a recipient of agape love, but you cannot demonstrate it unless God is at work in you. Because we know that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We can certainly, we can maybe practice a lesser form of love. We can be familiarly uh, caring for one another. We can practice Philadelphia, but we cannot practice agape if we are not a believer. Agape love is uniquely Christian. And that doesn't just make it a responsibility, but church, that makes it a privilege. Self-sacrificing love is a privilege that we have. It's, it's various iterations, this, this agape word as a noun, as a verb throughout the, the New Testament. It is used almost 150 times alone. Bible scholar Thomas Schreiner, he actually calls agape love the supreme Christian virtue. It is the virtue of all virtues. Jesus said in uh, John chapter 15, verses 12 and 13, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I, has lo- as I have loved you. Greater love, agape, has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Agape love is a willingness to die for someone else. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.5, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul says elsewhere in Colossians 3.14, that agape love literally holds things together in perfect harmony. If you as a believer, you sense perfect harmony in your life and it is because of an investment that you are making, that is a reflection of agape love. Really, the capstone of agape love in all of the scripture, and this will not be a surprise to some of us, but it comes from 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 is the wedding passage. It's the one that most people use when they get married. And yet, I would submit to you, it starts actually first in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31. There's a point that Paul's making there. But it's so much more than just the wedding passage. So we're not going to put it on the screen. It's not there. But what I want you to do is listen. So everybody with me, take a deep breath. Let's go. Ready? Listen to God's word. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak with the tongue of men and angels, but have not love... I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Agape love is patient. And kind. 
Agape love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. Irritability is in Scripture. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. Agape love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but agape love rejoices in truth. Do you rejoice in truth? Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things, even in the midst of hopelessness. Love endures all things. Love never ends. There's more, but I'm going to skip down to verse 13. It says, now faith, hope, and love, there's that faith and love sandwich. Faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is love. So that begs the question, what is agape love and how do we accomplish it? Agape love is a complete and intentional love comparable only to the love of God. And it is exampled in unending sacrifice, faith in Christ, patience, kindness, a good attitude, humility, and endurance. Agape love doesn't interrupt other people. Agape love is just consistent. Agape love is willfully, constantly pursuing self-sacrifice. Agape love is not just Philadelphia where you love each other as family, but it is a willful, intentional pursuit of self-sacrifice just because. In the same way that God so loved the world and sent his only son to die. To die. That's the kind of love that this passage is talking about. So as I did before, I want to give you a moment. This special love, this God-like love, this self-sacrificing love, this pursuit of self-sacrificing love, does that look like you? Does it look like your life? And I don't mean like in the Christian humility way where we need to be perfect. What I do mean though is, are you actually trying, are you shooting for is the ideal agape love? Or is it just, hey brother, hey girl, hey, how's it going? It's good to see you. Or is it more than that? If there are facets of agape love in your life, if you are shooting for this, if this is your ideal, if you do think this way, which one is the one you need to grow in? Which one is the one that you just kind of shy away from a little bit? I'm going to back away from that one. I do all these other ones really well. I'm going to shy away from that one a little bit. Is it faith? Do you do things in your own power a lot? Are you impatient? Are you unkind? Do you have a good attitude? Do you chronically interrupt people? Is your word more important than their word? Are you enduring? What area would God call you to improve? What area would God show you, call you to demonstrate more agape love? This is faith in community. This is your Christian faith being lived out in the presence of other people. This is you because of the growing you've done over the last year. Pointing yourself at others and saying, not only will I show you family affection, I will love you self-sacrificially. I will love you even when it hurts. I'll love you with messy love when it gets all over me and it's unpleasant. 
What area do we need to improve in that way? Before we close, I, wanna, I want to encourage you in your faith. I want you to remember something, something very specific. Peter, again, remember, he's at the end of his life. And he wants us to be growing together because of persecution. He wants us to be growing together because there are distortions of truth all around us. He wants you, he wants I, to remember the truth of our faith. It's not just that we can demonstrate brotherly and sisterly affection. It's not just agape love. But there is a truth in here about you. And, I, and Peter, not me, I, Peter wants you to hear it. He says, God's divine power has granted to us all things, not a few things, all things that pertain to eternal life in the future and a godly life right now. Through the knowledge of him who called us. He granted to us his precious and great promises. He has made you and I partakers in a divine nature. We have been changed. We're not just like still sort of sinners back here that are just stumbling along through life, working, 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 working. One day that Jesus, like, oh yeah, you've done enough. Let's get, it, get you in here. That's not what it is. You have a divine nature and a saved soul. You have been allowed to escape from the corruption of this world and from sinful desire. What that means, church, is you are fully equipped to do this. You are fully equipped in every single way across the scope of your life to live a vibrant Christian life. I want you to remember Ezekiel 36, 26. It says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you a heart of stone. I'll remove from you selfishness. I'll remove from you these other things. I will give you a heart of flesh. That means if you believe in Jesus, if you believe that Jesus was the son of God who came to earth because only God coming to earth could atone for our guilt, shame, and sin. Only God could atone on our behalf if you believe that Jesus had to die so that death does not have victory and you could be saved from all of the things that weigh us down in this life. That means you have a new heart. It means you have been granted a divine nature. It means that it is knowledge that you need to then bulk up and grow up in your faith so that you can live it out, so that we can practice these things. And 2 Peter 1.10 says, you won't fail. You won't fail. You won't fail. My friends, you have access to God. You have a direct pipeline to God. And he says, I will empower you and equip you to live this Christian life. You are not alone. You are not alone. You can do this. So my closing questions for you are these. I want you to think about these things. If you have realized that you are very good at family affection, but you have not love, if you realize that there is a power source in your life that you don't have because you are constantly discouraged, you are constantly weighed down, you kind of maybe know about Jesus, but you don't feel Jesus. You don't feel equipped. You don't feel empowered. You don't feel connected to God. It might be that you know God, but don't know God. It might be that you have awareness that Jesus died for your sins, but you have not believed it in your heart. 
And if that is you this morning, if you do not feel connected to a divine power that says you won't fail, you need to run to somebody in a badge this morning. I don't mean walk, I don't mean trot, I mean run. And find someone and say, I need to be connected to Jesus, help me get there. And let us walk you through the process of what it means to become a follower of Jesus. And if you do know Jesus as Savior and you do have this new heart, you do have this divine power coursing within you, who is it that you need to show brotherly or sisterly affection to that you haven't been? Who is it that you need to allow to show it to you? What area of agape love needs enhancement in your life? These are things that we should go to the Lord and talk about. Which is one of the reasons, really, we get to do communion today as well. We get to have a moment where we ask the question, is there something in my life, is there an area in my life that I need to talk with God about? Communion is an opportunity for us to declare our faith. So here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. I'm going to give you a minute. I, I, I want you to take a true minute. Silence is so uncomfortable, which is why it's so good for us. No phones. Close your Bibles. I want you to take a minute, just you and the Lord. And I want you to ask God, is there something in my life that needs to change? Is there an area in my life that I have been resistant to growth? Is there something in me that I have not surrendered to the Lord? Is there a form of agape love that I shy away from 